After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeHereNow. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. Danny Goldberg has been in the music business for 50 years as a publicist, talent manager, and record company executive. He's the author of four books, Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain, In Search of the Lost Chord and the Hippie Idea, Bumping into Geniuses, great title. And he's working on a new book now, Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment, and Politics in the Age of Trump. So since 2005, Goldberg has been president of Gold Village Entertainment, a management company whose clients include Steve Earle, The Waterboys, Betty LeVette, Ben Lee, and Martha Wainwright. In the 1980s and early 90s, he ran Gold Mountain Entertainment, whose clients included Bonnie Raitt, Nirvana, the Allman Brothers, but Band, and Sonic Youth. As a label executive, he was vice president of Led Zeppelin's Swan Song Records, co-created Modern Records, which released the first Stevie Nicks solo albums, and was president of Atlantic Records, chairman of Warner Brothers Records, chairman of the Mercury Records Group, and founder and chairman of Artemis Records. Goldberg began his career as a music journalist, writing for Billboard, for which he reviewed the Woodstock Festival when he was 19 and Rolling Stone, and in recent years has written periodically for The Nation on culture and politics. Goldberg co-directed and co-produced the political documentary No Nukes, starring Bruce Springsteen, produced MTV's first voter registration commercials in 1984, and served as CEO of Air America Radio in 2005. He currently serves on that board and is also on the boards of the ACLU Foundation of Southern California, Public Citizen, Americans for Peace Now, and Brave New Films. Wow. So that's quite a diverse and very CSM kind of CV. <laughs> um, and the last thing I want to say before I welcome Danny is, ironically, somehow, magically, mysteriously, I was at Danny and Karen's house the night that Hillary lost the election to Donald Trump. They invited me over and a bunch of other people, some of whom were kind of seasoned political observers, 
nobody saw what was coming and we were all happy and we were babbling away and chatting about various things. And then, you know, the night went on and on and our faces got grayer and grayer and sunk. Uh, and, um, by the end of the evening, you all know what happened. Um, so I remember riding the subway home and, you know, I went home and watched the rest of it till two or three in the morning. So we shared that passage and, um, you know, we, we can sort of launch from, from that point of view. But Danny, I just wanted to officially welcome you to, to the gathering and thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, so nice to be here. Yeah. So there's so much um, of merit and interest in, in your life. Uh, so I'm going to be a little spontaneous. What, what comes to mind first? Out of, if you just, we call it first thought, best thought. You know, I always try to be as much in the moment as I can be, because one thing about the past, and I know you've produced records and been involved with things that were very consuming, and suddenly they're in the rearview mirror. And so I'm, I'm always the most excited about whatever I'm doing. And, and, and in the music area, the artists I work with now, uh, you know, uh, Steve Earle just over the weekends putting up a song called times like these that comments on what's going on that's very very beautiful so that's like first thought because i just heard it like an hour before we started doing this wow and was it written before all this happened or in response to it he wrote it um and and it was going to be you know the the um the independent record stores uh, uh, have become very important to certain kind of artists, and it's it's a and they sell vinyl mostly. So there's a thing called Record Store Day, where to support these independent retailers, a lot of artists will make a single that's exclusive to them. So he had recorded the song with his band um, uh, for a Record Store Day single, and it'll still end of August or September. That version of it'll be out, and then when the disturbances happened after that horrible. Uh, murder in Minneapolis. Uh, he uh, he decided to re-record it acoustically to just put it out there as a, as a standalone kind of digital, as you would say, offering. Uh, yeah. You know, and uh, I just heard it an hour or two ago. It's it's it, you'll you'll uh, you'll be very touched by it. I think. Uh, yeah, it's so powerful what's happening now, and I think one of the interesting things talking to somebody with your background is that. I had the feeling, you know, we're about the same ilk. And I, 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 I was thinking of writing a book called In One Era and Out the Other. There you go. But it's been done already, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, I'm sure you can relate to the concept. Um, but there's some echoes right now in, in the, from the past. And then there's a feeling of uh, that I'm fighting a little bit. God, I've seen all this before. Yeah. You know, and a little bit of that, uh, okay, what, what, What's different about now, if anything? Well, first of all, it's now. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge difference. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, there's more human beings on the planet. There's this technology that we have now. I mean, I think... Uh, uh, it, you know, during the past plagues, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't Zoom. Uh, so, um, uh, those are, those are differences and just the nature of creation is that, although what, what is that the old corny thing that Mark Twain supposedly said, the past doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, <laughs> but so it does rhyme. And some of the essential fights between dark and light or, you know, uh, it, whatever, however you want to frame it, go back to biblical time. The 20th, 19th century, 20th century, and yesterday, but but the um, but it doesn't repeat itself. There, there's there's a, it's it's alive. So so we we, we don't know just because something happened ten or twenty or a hundred years ago, it's going to wind out that way now. So, but I mean, the obvious external difference is this technology that, that human beings didn't have until recently. Mm. Yeah, what would it be like if we didn't have this right now? It'd be quite different game. Yeah, it would be. I mean, I look a lot of it. It's so weird. I've I, I felt disoriented quite a bit over the last few months, and there are people in a lot of worse circumstances that are more disoriented. I'm sure, but but it would be a lot worse without the ability to connect somehow. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that. Even though there's a lot of things about the modern world I don't like, I, I like being able to talk to you right now. Yeah. 
it uh, because otherwise the news would have gone away too. The news is relying on the internet right now. That's one of the weird things is you turn on TV and it looks like the internet. I know, I know. The quality of the sound and the pictures also looks a lot like the internet. It's funny. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting to watch the. It, it's almost going back to like, uh, what, what do you call that kind of radio? Um, you know, in in a truck. Uh, Shortwave radio? Yeah, shortwave. We're like in, we went from a high-tech, you know, massive flat screen kind of high-resolution reality to, to shortwave radio where just, you know, you see, you know, well-known people, governors of states in their T-shirts in their basements. Well, there's, a, there's an emotional reality to that, though, which I actually like. I mean, I don't like the suffering, and I want it to end as soon as possible, but that... Um, there's a level of intimacy that you don't have when people have their own makeup artist and someone blow drying their hair and sure. getting the lighting exactly right and, and so forth. So, you know, that's a silver lining. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then everything, you know, I, I wonder if the difference between comedy and tragedy is how long it lasts. Well, that's when somebody said the difference between comedy is tragedy plus time. I oh, so I'm I'm actually tapping Mel, into something. Mel there. Brooks, I think Mel Brooks uh, may have said that, but yeah, maybe, uh, but it's it is true. It's a little early to laugh about some of these things, though. Yeah, yeah. Of course, then you think of Hogan's Heroes or something like that. You know, right. comedies about the Nazis. You know? Right. Yeah. So right after yeah. Hitler again, Mel. Mel uh, yeah. Not to be obsessed with Mel Brooks, but well, springtime. Uh, they did a little spoof on it. Um, I think uh, on springtime for Hitler. Yeah. With Trump, uh, they they did. They right? it was for the Jimmy Kimmel show, I think. Yeah. Matthew Matt, Broderick, well, Matthew Broderick, uh, yeah. Anyway, Nathan Lane, yeah, that was. Um, so the, the the deja vu aspect is is intriguing, and also I think I and maybe you and maybe a lot of other people are going. What are we going to come back to? Is there is there a return to something after this? Um, and if so, what would what will that be? And you know, so I wanted to invite you. Actually, you you mentioned in the prelogue here talking about not knowing, which yeah. led us into a whole interesting kind of uh, yeah. connection. Could you just fill everybody in on what we were talking about there? Well, I was referring to there was a teacher named Bernie Glassman, who I I think you must have known, and, and I did. Yeah, who, who meant a lot to me, who invented something called Zen peacemakers with three principles: not knowing. Uh, bearing witness and loving kindness, and the fact that he started with not knowing is uh, is so um, illuminating to me. I I, I I I know in his latter years he came up with this thing where he would always frame. It. He said, "I think everything would be better if people would start with saying, in my opinion." Uh, Bernie said that my opinion to whatever they're saying. It's yeah. a different conversation as opposed to this is true and what you're saying is false. And, um, and I really uh, think about that all the time. And I try to say it a lot. And it does change the tone of the same content. Um, but, um, you know, there's two conflicting, gigantic uh, meta themes that we're going to choose from, one of which is uh, this dystopian survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog. Dog, and the other is we're all in this together and we have to... Mm -hmm pay more attention to the notion of, of community, both locally, nationally, and even globally. And, and that's, those, those are the two meta-narratives. Uh, I, I don't think it's a big surprise which one of them I am rooting for. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's going to play out in a billion different ways. Do you think those are eternal meta-narratives of just human life? Like that. I mean, yeah. you know, the book I'm writing now, I'm going back and studying some history, and I think of like in the 1940s is when Ayn Rand writes, you know, The Fountainhead and, and, and this whole theory of uh, the superior man and uh, altruism is for suckers. <laughs> and people in power today, many of them are direct devotees of Ayn Rand. Donald Trump has actually praised the Fountainhead. I mean, we think that he's never read a book. So, some of us more cynical Democrats think that anyway. But, but, but you know, Steve Mnuchin and a lot of these, you know, so that's a philosophy. Yeah. And that was the same argument that was being had in the 40s as now. And I think if you go back, uh, so some of these ethical and moral arguments about how human beings should organize themselves, what should a government be, what should a society be, uh, are old arguments played out in the new world. Yeah.
let's talk a little more about not knowing. Yeah. And, and maybe you could explain what, what that, what's meant by that. Well, it means to acknowledge there's so much that you don't know. I remember, I, I, I only have a few odd memories from being a kid, but I remember the first time I went into a library immediately knowing that I was never going to be able to read all of the books in the library. And, 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 have, and I still, when I go into a bookstore, I get this wave of despair that I'll just never be able to read all the books. But then that's followed by, fine, I can't count all the leaves on the trees or all, you know, there's a lot of things that this mortal mind can't know. And I think that if you know that you don't know, you can learn something. And if you think you know everything, you can't learn something. Mm-hmm. You know, the cups, I mean, we're actually going to be talking about this in the teacher training. The, the three cups, the types of students that there are? No. This, it's, it's sort of Zen-derived. Uh, There's the full cup, right? So you try to pour something in, it's already full. Um, there's the leaky cup, mm. can't sustain. And, uh, of course, there's the nicely put-together empty cup, which is, uh, you know, when you meet people like that, it's very refreshing. And then there's a the cup with poison in it. So I guess there's really four. It sounds like four. I mean, I'm, yeah. yeah. I think they don't usually identify the, uh, the, the good cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, Zen, that, that expression not knowing is very much tied to the Zen tradition. So I just want to say a little more about Bernie because he actually came up, we did uh, this session with Krishnadas in LA last, uh, last uh, two weeks ago. And he, you know, he had a, a relationship with uh, Bernie. So let's just say a little bit about who Bernie is that we're talking about because he's actually a pretty major figure in terms of um, Buddhism in the West. Yeah, well, what I understand, I have not studied Buddhism, but I've read some. I'm dilettante about it. But 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 what he explained to me was he was trained in in Japan. I think the similar training, I think, to what you had, or in the same ballpark. And he had an epiphany at one point where he just felt kind of the suffering of the world and, and felt that he had to merge the idea of what he learned as a Buddhist with uh, 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 manifesting compassion in some way. And so he moved to New York and the first thing he did was he started a bakery in Yonkers. It's called Greystone. It still exists, which, which employed people that otherwise couldn't get a job. They were either coming from welfare or from jail and would be disqualified. And, uh, you know, with some help from, Ben and Jerry's, I might say, who ordered an enormous amount of uh, of uh, chocolate brownies for one of their ice cream flavors, was able to build something where I think thousands, it's now in the thousands of people that have taken that bridge from welfare to work, from jail to work, from living on the streets uh, to work. And then when he did that, one of the things about Bernie is he would do something, you talk about manifesting things, then he moved on. He left other people in charge of it. And, and then created these things called homeless retreats where people would live on the streets for a few days uh, it, it, to experience what it was like to be homeless. I first met him on a homeless retreat, and I have to confess, I just never had the nerve to do it. I, I just was terrified of, of the idea of actually being on the, living on the streets for a few days. But I visited him on the streets and uh, <laughs> kind enough to... Uh, not make me feel guilty about it. And then he did a lot of work in the Middle East trying to create peace uh, talks between Palestinians and Israelis. He did a series of, um, I don't know what to call them, vigils or spiritual visits to Auschwitz. I was fortunate enough to go with him on the, the first one to just, again, bear witness to the suffering and then and then kind of pray and send light to the souls of people there. And it was, it sounds like a terrible experience, but it was actually a cosmic uh, experience to to, 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 to to see that through his eyes and to, and to, and to share and trying to shine some light in that place. And, and, you know, there's a website, Zen Peacemakers lists all of the things he did, but, but he was, uh, he was uh, the real deal, you know, heavyweight yeah. division dude. Yeah, and you know, my knowing him went all the way back into the early seventies when I mid seventies when I was living in Los Angeles, and I was running uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's Dharma Center there, and the Zen Center was just right uh, downtown, you know, a couple of miles away, and we had a lot of interaction with them. Uh, his teacher was Maizumi Roshi, who was along with some of the early uh, great Asian teachers who brought Buddhism to the West, was a very important teacher. There were other there were other students of his who had, Bernie was the senior one, 
Um, but there were others. And, and then it spawned people like, you know, uh, Joan Halifax, who's a very famous Buddhist right. teacher, right. was a student of Bernie's. So he, Maizumi Roshi is already grandfather, you know, of a spiritual tradition here in the West. Um, and, you know, not, notable. And then he, it's obvious that he encouraged Bernie to find his own way once he had, had been trained. That's the, that's the interesting thing. Right. He just say, go out and play in the Woodstock in the square. Go to music school first, and then you can go play in Woodstock exactly. Square. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. And, and then that model is an interesting model. The bakery, um, you wonder why, you know, some of these smart, rich people don't pick up on, and do more of that. Yeah, I, I was briefly on the board. You know, I'm not great as a board member. I'm not a lawyer. Or, you know, I don't love being on boards. But I was briefly on the board and had a glimpse at it because I wanted to honor Bernie's vision. Um, for somehow, it, 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 it was not scalable. It was so much about the particular people. And I think, you know, that he, he couldn't replicate himself. He wasn't scalable. But the, the concept of it, like, for example, if you could imagine Amazon taking a billion dollars, which is a nickel to them, you know, and just creating some kind of business envelope around employing people who are previously unemployable as it just. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he, you know, he had a real vision. His, yeah. th his thing was that because people didn't have homes, then he built apartments and because there were no schools, he built daycare. And then this was during the era when the AIDS epidemic was raging and he felt he couldn't ignore that because the suffering was, again, bearing witness. So, you know, he, he was able to attract a level of donations because of, this is my theory of it, because, the, you know, just the power of his being, that's what is not scalable. It doesn't yeah. actually pay for itself. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a very... Um, you know, he got support from Republicans and others because it was about putting people to work. You know, it, 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 it fit into some traditional conservative rhetoric, but it still, it still required a level of money. I don't, for whatever reason, it turned out not to be a model that others adapted, but it still is there in Yonkers and it's still doing that work. So it, 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 that, that piece of it is still there if anyone's interested in it. Might be an interesting stone to turn over again. Yeah, in, in the on upcoming conversations, but the the thing that um, kind of is mind bending, and I would have him in the, on this podcast in one second because creativity, spirituality, making buck is wildly creative with that, the the, the uh, way that he took the classical Zen piece out into the world. Um, he was clearly a deeply trained spiritual teacher, uh, and. They worked with finances and without thinking it's a dirty thing or something that yeah, you can't, right. I can't yeah. address. You know, oh, we're spiritual. We don't. We have to. We have to account for every penny. We can't. We can't work in the world of um, finance or commerce. So yeah. it's a fine line. And um, so let me ask you this, uh, Danny, because uh, you know, just to for for you personally, have you ever felt any pull or conflict between, let's say, your spiritual core or basis, whatever, however you would define that, and how you made a living in the world? Did those seem integrated to you or have they struggled with each well, other? Well, I mean, the concept and the ideal of how I made a living in the world to me never seemed like a conflict. I just believe everyone has their destiny and you follow it and you try to be a good person, uh, be ethical. And if you make extra money, give some of it away and take care of the people around you. The reality of how I behave day to day uh, was frequently in conflict with my uh, how I wanted to be, because uh, you know uh, just because I uh, read Ram Dass's "Be Here Now" and had a wonderful spiritual teacher named Hilda Charlton, and and read spiritual books didn't eliminate uh, my bad temper, my uh, getting offended easily, uh, uh, jealousy, and a series of other uh, attributes that uh, I'm still uh, working on. So. In terms of day-to-day, -day, I would often feel that tension and try to resolve it, hopefully in a good way. But in terms of the notion of being a, you know, what the Hindus would call a householder and, 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 and having a role, that I just felt that was my place in the world. My teacher, Hilda, definitely told me, do your work, kid, you know, and, and, and so uh, I, I didn't feel there was a conceptual conflict, but on a day-to-day -day level... Mm. 
and uh, not a day goes by that I don't feel uh, a certain conflict that I that I am I uh, you know being too uh, bad listener, or too egotistical, uh, or too intimidated, you know, uh, etc. So, Danny, as we move into you know looking at um, ex- for each of us exploring our offering. You know, it, it's it, the heaven principle is like bigger than the offering. It's just everything, right? It's all inclusive. But since we have an individual kind of uh, existence, that it tends to crystallize into something specific. Like people are very specific. It's uh, it's stunning to me always how unique each person that I talk to and work with is. Uh, what? How would you describe what you do? Um, I um, I. The way I, I mean, other than I have this second career of, as a writer, which you alluded to, which these days is sort of half of my time. But in terms of the last 50 years, um, I, I work with, with artists in different ways to to support their work. I knew, uh, un, you know, I, I knew at a very early age that I had no musical talent. I, I took piano lessons. It was terrible. I took trumpet lessons. It was terrible. I couldn't, the guitar strings hurt my fingers. I couldn't hear if something was out of tune or not. So I never had any notion that I could be a musical artist, but I love music so much. Uh, uh, and um, when I learned that there was this thing called the music business and that you could have a job close to the fire without being the fire, you know, without, without being the musician, that there was such a thing as, uh, first of all, this idea of writing about music. I couldn't believe that was a job. I mean, I, I, I first started in the late 60s. I got my, you know, the first job in late 68. You know, I dropped out of college and needed a job. And there were these people that got to go to concerts for free and write their opinions about them. <laughs> you know, I was a clerk in this office. Yeah, those are called drummers. Billboard. And I said, how do I get that job? That sounds like amazing. You know, I, I, I had some issues. I wasn't very good in school and all that. But I thought I was smart, but I, I had a problem fitting into the world. But I knew I could write my opinions of a rock concert. That sounded like something I could nail. And then I learned that there were people that actually got to work with these artists and could be of help to them. And, you know, I had such admiration you know, the first few times I met artists that were on albums, I mean, I could barely speak. I was so in awe of them. But then I realized they, they can't do everything. And there are these other people that have these jobs. I saw that movie, uh, Don't Look Back, uh, about the Bob Dylan's uh, tour of England in the 60s. And there was this guy in the room with him that was like sharing all the in-jokes and negotiating for him named Albert Grossman. And I was like, that's like the coolest person in the world who's not actually a musician that I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, later I got to work for Albert a couple of times and know him. And he certainly was one of the role models because he did a good job for Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan, to this day, is my favorite artist. And uh, the band, right? Albert managed the band? He managed the band. He managed Janis Joplin. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, I was working for him when Janis uh, died. Um, you know, but, but uh, and I got to meet her once in his office. Uh, so... Um, was Albert a mentor to you in any way, would you say? Well, you know, I wouldn't say he was a mentor, but he was kind of a role model. You know, uh-huh. he, he was a little too distant to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did have mentors later on. Certainly this guy, Doug Morris, who hired me to be a record company executive, was, was, a, was an old school mentor. And Lee Walters, who ran a PR company that I worked for when I was in my early 20s, I don't think he thought of himself as a mentor, but I know he was one because I learned from him how to do publicity, which is the trade that I got me through with the whole rest of my career. So what you do is, is, as I'm hearing you, is you're close to something you love and you facilitate its expression. Well, it's um, also a business. And support the people who are creating it. Yeah, well, it, it, again, so then it takes different specific forms. The, the, the first thing I did, because I came out of journal, first thing I did was write about people I loved. As a journalist, I was not a very successful critic, and they were, I never got the big job at the New York Times or anything, which probably in retrospect was lucky, because I like what I ended up doing. But one of the reasons was that I only liked to write good things about people. I just didn't like writing bad reviews. I, I idolized the musicians too much. <laughs> so what made me sort of a mediocre critic made me an extremely effective publicist, that sort of enthusiasm. That's what you're supposed to be as a publicist. Mm-hmm. So the job of a publicist is to um, represent uh, an artist to the media. And the media changes, obviously, decade by decade. 
you know, when I started, it was, it was uh, the age of print. There were magazines. There were, you know, oh my God, you'd go to a magazine stand. There were th- I'd pick buy 30 magazines and learn the name of each music reviewer and so on and what they were writing about. So when I called them, I could say, gee, I read that piece that you wrote about, uh, you know, Carol King or whatever it would be. And then, and then uh, I was a, the client that sort of made my reputation as a publicist was Led Zeppelin, who, who the company I was working for got them as a client. I was the only one young enough to get that they were important. So I, 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 uh, lucky break for me. And they had this manager named Peter Grant, who was at the time the most powerful manager in the, in, in the rock business, certainly. And he, he was certainly a mentor to me just by example. I saw, because I was way closer to him than I had been to Albert. Albert, I just got to say hi to from time to time and right. had awkward conversations hoping to not look stupid. Peter, I work with every day for three years. And, um, and uh, you know, his thing was to recognize the power of the artist. That, 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 that without the artist, the record companies had no records to sell. The concert promoters had no tickets to sell. And uh, if you were fortunate enough to have an artist like Led Zeppelin, you, you could have a lot of power. You could change the power relationship. And he negotiated much bigger percentages of money for, for, the, for Zeppelin than previous bands that had and, uh, and the complete control of everything they did artistically. Albert, Albert was into that also. But, but, but Peter took what Albert did to the next level in terms of empowering his clients. I see. Um, Danny, let me read you um, just a short um, piece from the book, which is called Clarify Your Offering. And then I want to throw it, you know, throw it back to you. Okay. Um, The quote, each chapter has a quote. And I don't know if you ever met Dave Elner. Did you ever bump him? He was the CFO CFO at UMusic. And he was, you know, involved with Kripalu and, you know, kind of meditator. So he started a company called Pana, which is uh, like Celebrity Chef app. Okay. And the quote is, make something delicious for someone you love. And I love that thinking of that as the offering. Yeah. Know, make something delicious for someone you love. So when we contemplate heaven and earth, remember that there's a third important component in this relationship, which is humanity. Mm. In this traditional view, the job of humans is to join heaven and earth, to bring together vision and practicality. As we focus our exploration, I think we'll begin to see that we each have some kind of special offering to make to this world. Perhaps this approach is kind of romantic, and if so, I can live with that. If we see our existence as some kind of fundamental expression of creativity, it's only natural to conclude that we can and should express ourselves, if only in the spirit of call and response. The universe created us, and now we're responding by creating our offering back. Our offering could be art, business, charity, leadership, innovation. That's entirely up to each one of us. We can have a variety of offerings, even a plethora of offerings. The notion here is that we each have some unique expression, idea, presentation that we're inspired to bring out of our inner world and present to our outer world, our family, friends, colleagues, community, society, world, even universe, if you want to reach that far. At this point in this process, we're just trying to feel, to assess what we want to express from our unique perspective. In the next session, section, which I'm hoping that we'll get to, if we choose, we're going to see what's involved with presenting our offering beyond our intimate world of family and friends. We're going to explore sharing our offering with the larger world, our community, society, and beyond. Here, though, we're just trying to access our personal Geiger counter and see what we naturally tune into, what intrigues us, what we enjoy communicating with and about, in essence, what floats our boat. <clears throat> For you, your offering can be as yet undiscovered or discovered but not ripened. Think of a green banana or a hard melon. Or ripened but not yet fully manifested and shared. It could be as a marketing person, a salesperson, a scientist, a theoretical physicist, a pharmacist, an elementary school teacher, a lifestyle innovator, an architect, a garbage collector, a short order cook, whatever. And then folks, you know, work on clarifying that offering. So you, you seem to me to, you, you got your offering clear pretty long time ago. I'm working with these artists one way or another to help them get their thing out and across. But what, what about clarifying their offering? Like you work with, let me take Nirvana, for example, which you manage, you were the manager of Nirvana, eh? I, I was, there were two of us who managed Nirvana. Yeah. Okay. So that is a very innovative at the time, very cutting edge kind of group. 
yeah. right? It was part of a movement, but it was um, a, a unique thing. Did you, A, did they have trouble figuring out who the hell they were as a band? Um, well, let me just say, firstly, that like any of these gigantic stars, um, big names, you know, different people would have a little different version of reality, like the blind man and the elephant. So all I can tell is my perception. Uh, and, and, and the, the, um, firstly, it was the vision of one person. It was Kurt Cobain. He wrote all the songs. He was the lead singer. He wrote the lyrics. He wrote the music. Uh, he storyboarded all the videos. He designed the album covers. He made every single decision that the band made. Uh, and that's no disrespect to the other two guys who are both extremely talented and interesting people. And obviously Dave Grohl's going on to have an incredible career of his own with the Foo Fighters. But, but Nirvana itself was, was one person's vision and he knew exactly who he was. The, you know, my, my role, and, 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 and this is my favorite type of artist to work with or what I call these genius types. That's why I called that book Bumping Into Geniuses. You know, there's all different ways of being in the music business, but you know, the, the part that inspired me because I saw Albert Grossman in that movie with Bob Dylan was to try to find, well, who the closest people to Bob Dylan that I could get close to. So, um, you know, Kurt is on that list. There's, you know, he, he didn't live very long, so he's not gonna have the body of work of somebody like that. But, but for those few years, he was, uh, he was the most important rock artist in the world. And he, uh, he had an extremely clear vision about what he wanted to do. My job was to try to help him uh, uh, just clear away some of the obstacles to it, make sure he had good deals, make sure he had uh, support. He was involved with a lot of um, uh, complicated personal problems that required some sophistication in terms of dealing with the media. Um, but, you know, and it was, it was a lot of uh, work and a lot of ups and downs. I try to write about it intelligently. But the point is, what he needed no help on was the vision of the art. He, he was a real-life genius. He, he had it in his head. And, um, you know, during those few years... Uh, it's hard to think of any artistic uh, mistakes that he made. And he viewed the art of being a rock artist, not just in terms of the music, but in terms of the totality of the relationship between himself and the public. And, you know, although he was known and Nirvana was known as kind of the apogee of punk rock because it took punk rock music and cultural symbols and brought it into the mainstream, he was... Uh, he was also a great fan of the Beatles, even though he was too young. You know, he was born in 1967, so he, he wasn't part of his teenage years. But, but he recognized the uniqueness of the Beatles and of John Lennon and really understood the way John Lennon... We all thought we knew John Lennon. It wasn't just hearing the music. It was like him and Yoko, we were part of their adventure. And there was a, a, um, a transparency that Lennon gave to his fans where you felt you knew what he was feeling. And Kurt, so in every interview, in every photo, in everything he did on a stage was part of the art, you know, and it was, the, that's why they're recognized not just for their music, but for their cultural significance to their fans, to that generation of people, you, you know, they had a deeper meaning than just good songs. So, uh, you know, he had that all, he had that all. If you read his, uh, uh, journals from before he made it, 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 it was all in his head. So he was one of those guys. Steve Earle, by the way, is not as important a figure as Kurt Cobain in the history of music. He'd be the first to admit it, but he's an incredibly talented, special, unique artist, Renaissance man. And he's the same way. He, we have all sorts of problems. I have to deal with making a new deal and budgeting things and figuring out, uh, uh, you know, strategies. But the art itself, like, he's the artist. Yeah. Those are the kind of people I like to work with. So my idea is to try to, they do the art. My job is to try to help organize the business, which can include the imaging and marketing around the art. That's, that's where I have something to contribute. Well, that's, uh, that's so clear, Danny, you know, it makes, it makes life that, you know, when we're talking about your, you've clarified your offering. And so I, one does not get the feeling of you bumping into yourself on the way to, to try to accomplish what you're trying to do. Well, that's, that's you may not get the sense of it, but it sure happens. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and that's quite, you know, yeah, find, that out of my narrative, but, uh, <laughs> but you're saying find, find a great, you know, as a chef, you're saying find a great piece of fish, find a great 
uh, tomato to start with? Well, my path is that, you know, again, there's a lot of different ways of being in the music business. I only know the one that I took. My path is if you, if you find people that you think are brilliant, even if they're not making money right away, the odds are a lot better. Yeah. They'll be successful than if you don't feel that way. And also because you're spending a lot of your time in my line of work, especially as a manager, but also in the other roles as an advocate and you're bumping up against other people's obstacles. No, we don't want the artist to do that. Or could you get them yeah. to do this? That, 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 that they're actually believing that they're special makes it easier for me to do that, play that role. Cause otherwise you can kind of resent having to deal with all these problems for somebody if you don't actually admire them. Sure. Well, so, and then the next leap, um, and again, you know, this is the sequence that I took, you know, in the book, I'm trying to lead people through a process where um, if if they need clarification and the meditation practice is a very good ground for just leaving enough space to let your, your let mind settle and then you can kind of see what the pieces are at least and what's on there. Yeah. So first step is clarifying the offering, which is what we were just talking about. And now the, this next step is moving towards manifestation level. Um, take your offering to the marketplace. So... I just want to read a little bit of that and throw us into that where you just were leading us. Anyhow, it's like, how do you get this stuff done? How do you make it happen? Um, and I think these are questions that many, many people have. They sometimes have it figured out for a while and they, they shift careers or they, um, they have a strong spiritual experience and it makes them want to operate in a different milieu. Or know, the world they, changes. Or the world and the world changes. So suddenly yeah. no more record stores, for example. Well said, Sabuti. Yeah. No more bookstores either, <laughs> since you're mentioning it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm um, just going to read a short passage. For some of us, our offering may come from a deep passion, perhaps one we want to preserve in its purity. We don't want to uh, bring our livelihood concerns into the picture. Again, mentioning Charles Ives, for example, felt this way. He was a major American composer in the early 20th century, and he sold life insurance very successfully, apparently. So he wouldn't have to concern himself with the commercial aspects of being a composer and having a manager and having uh, you know, a record label and all that stuff. Many painters, filmmakers, musicians, craftspeople, chefs, etc., may feel the same way about their offering, and that's fine. So we're not really pushing one agenda or the other in this case. However, if we see our day job as simply an enabler for some other activity, if we can't see our work as some kind of offering, our life could easily start to feel stale and uninspiring. All of us have to take some kind of offering to the marketplace, even if only to be able to do to pay our rent and other bills. I encourage you to find the value in whatever it is that you spend your day doing to find the offering in your job. Some people keep their job and calling separate. Um, others migrate toward a more holistic relationship between their passion and their work life. This is something I talked about with people about all the time. They don't feel like they're, they're integrated, and that's what the, the approach is about. Hopefully, the general principles discussed in the chapters will apply to any and all business situations, helping you move towards some balance, productivity, and efficiency. So now let's come back to our offering, whether it's our heart song or our day job, and begin to explore how we can take it to the marketplace and create a viable livelihood from it. So I just, I'll read you a couple of the chapter, you know, the headings. Define your offering. Um, linking your creative offering to the livelihood piece. Continuously refine your offering. Know the market. Do your homework. Some offerings will create their own market. Others are designed for existing markets. And I use the example of hip-hop. You had to create the market for hip-hop. There was no, oh, this is the fifth hip-hop record ever came out. This is the first one. I have to, now the marketing job is explaining to people what hip-hop is and why they might want to do it. Then later on, you go, oh, yeah, this is a great hip-hop artist. And everybody goes, okay, I'm interested, you know. Um, don't spread yourself too thin. That's the last one. So um, if any of those things, you know, maybe I'll go back to the, the, the beginning. I think <clears throat> going back to knowing your market and doing your homework. So even, even if these artists are very uh, original and creative, is part of their job or part of your job actually knowing where they're putting their goods out into and who else is doing Similar things? Well, um, no two artists 
are the same. So they each have a different set of issues that they're dealing with. But one one thing that a lot of artists have to think about, and I think people who aren't artists have to think about, is is to be consistent, to understand. I, I, I hate this word brand because it it sort of takes human beings and puts us in the same category as kind of a breakfast cereal or a candy bar. <laughs> And, and and on the other hand, it's become uh, you know shorthand for what your persona is, what your reputation is, and um, certainly um, we've seen artists who've been able to do things that were um, not what the expectations were of their audience and pull it off. Famously, Bob Dylan went electric, and all the a certain percentage of the folk fans felt he'd betrayed them, but most of his fans went with him and the band Radiohead keeps changing what they do and they do concerts where they don't even do their familiar songs and their fans follow them wherever they go. But those are rare exceptions. And, um, uh, you know, uh, there's kind of an axiom in the rock business, which is uh, only Keith Richards can act like Keith Richards. You know, don't, 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 don't do that at home. You know, right. and, and in general understanding uh, doing things that are within the boundaries of whatever identity you've created and you can try to change it you can jettison certain things and add certain things but 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 if you if you're inconsistent in a way that confuses people that's counterproductive whether whether you're a uh, you know whether whether you're a plumber or a guitar player it, it, you know um, there there has to be you have to kind of think on two levels at the same time. One, you have a notion of where you want to go, and that's good because that motivates you, but you have to understand where you are and deal with the you know six inches in front of yourself or else you're never going to get anywhere. So uh, I don't know if that's responsive to what you asked or not. I, I, I got a little... Um, there were so many things in that passage that... Yeah. that well, I'm, this idea of branding, I mean, to focus it a little more, um, in general... In any business, there's the idea of content driving the bus, and there's the idea of marketing driving the bus. And the record business, arguably, in the time that we've been involved with it, went from a content-driven, more heavily content-driven, to a more heavily market-driven business as it got larger and larger. Do you think that's true or no? I don't know. I mean, certainly marketing was always part of the business. You look at those films of uh, the two remaining films of, you know, uh, Hank Williams wearing uh, those suits with all of the uh, rhinestones. Uh, you know, body, uh, yeah. rhinestones. Uh, and uh, you look at uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, and how he would jump up on the piano and wave his hair around. Um, so I don't think in the part of the music business that I've been involved with, which is the mass appeal business, we used to call it the rock and roll business, then hip hop came and pop business. And then of course, hip hop and R&B and country are also part of this wider commercial universe. But, but, you know, I'm a rock and roll kid and the history of rock and roll marketing and the art were intertwined from day one. Elvis wiggling his hips is not the same as Elvis not wiggling his hips, you know, so I don't really buy the idea that things became less uh, personal. I just think we got older and we uh, understand the personal connection necessarily that a 16 year old girl has with Billie Eilish, the way I understood my connection with Jimi Hendrix or Bob Dylan. And my parents didn't understand those connections, you know, uh, yeah. my, you know, so I, I, I think that, that the interesting thing about the music business, and of course, there's a lot of greedy people in it, there are dishonest people in it, there are insincere people in it, and there's bad art, and there's mediocrity that sometimes is successful. But at the core, the core product is still music. And thank God, you know, you, you still have uh, creative people doing it. And um, now, do you have to understand how to expose the music? Back when I was starting, we were all obsessed with what can get played on the radio because if it, that was the main connector. You know, then there was a secondary connector, which was some of the press. So if you could get in Rolling Stone, you could connect with people. So, you know, understanding how to connect with people is part of being a successful artist. There are certainly artists who become completely fulfilled without that kind of 
mass appeal success, who can play in living rooms, and who can make a living doing things. And that's a totally important, honorable path. It doesn't happen to be the aspect of it that I'm the most familiar with. But, um, but I think that if you're going to have an audience, then some understanding of how to connect with them, which we call marketing, is required. I, 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 Jimi Hendrix, you know, later on, you know, he started... Um, when he, in the latter, last year of his career, he said, oh man, you know, I don't want to like play the guitar with my teeth anymore and <laughs> all these kind of things. Well, nobody told him to do that in the first place. He realized that was what would get him attention, yeah. you know? And then when he became Jimi Hendrix and it had Foxy Lady and all those great songs, he had the luxury of toning down some of the theatrics and focusing more you know, on, on, on the music and he could do things with, you know, Miles Davis, whoever he wanted to play with in the latter year of his life. But, um, I don't know of any, great uh, idea for a New York. became successful by accident uh-huh. in my experience. Uh-huh. Okay. That's a power. That. There are people that are brilliant who are not successful. And if you're more brilliant, you can make a lot fewer compromises in terms of reaching people but I don't care whether you're Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Radiohead, you pick the most arty, personal artist in the world. They wanted to be well-known or they wouldn't be well-known. It just doesn't happen by itself. Nobody ever got successful by accident. That's a a good quote to pull out of here. Yeah, you got it. Run with it. Yeah, we're going to take it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest? Are you holding on to secrets, fears, or frustrations? We all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Don't keep it all bottled up inside. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.